Hi friends, this is Dr. Michael Williams, and welcome back to another episode of the Diversifying Path podcast. This podcast explores how investing in diversity can lead to a high return of investment in pathology and laboratory medicine by learning from the knowledge and experiences of diverse voices within our field. My next guest is Dr. Olivia Cardenas Trowers. Dr. Trowers is a fellowship-trained urogynecologist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida who specializes in treating female pelvic floor disorders. She is a senior associate consultant in the Department of Medical and Surgical Gynecology and an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine. Dr. Trowers earned her medical degree from Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. She completed her residency in OBGYN at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona followed by a fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. In addition to her clinical practice, Dr. Trowers is active in research and education, has been awarded research funding, and has authored more than 20 peer-reviewed publications and textbook chapters. She is a national speaker and holds positions on several national committees, including the American Urogynecological Society, and the Society of Gynecological Surgeons. Without further ado, here's Dr. Trowers. All right. Hi again, friends. This is Dr. Michael Williams. I'm here with another episode of the Diversifying Path podcast. So I'm here with my next guest. Can you tell us who you are, where you are from, and your pronouns? Sure. So my name is Olivia Cardenas Trowers. I am a urogynecologist and I'm currently at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I've been in this position for over a year now and my pronouns are she and her. Perfect. And so I always start off with uh, all my guests about how did you get interested in um, going into medicine and then uh, what what factors that had you pick OBGYN as as a career? Sure. So I guess my my, my earliest um, influence and inspiration came from my dad. My dad is a gastroenterologist. Uh, he's still currently practicing and he's in Arizona. And so growing up, I think I had a very positive um, depiction of what a, a physician is. Uh, sometimes people say, oh, physicians work a lot. They don't spend time with their families. And I really didn't see that because my dad made a, a, a intentional choice early on in his career that his family came first. So for him, that meant moving from private practice where he, you know, had to work very hard in order to, you know, build up enough financially to you know bring back to his family um, to academic medicine where his passion lied in, in educating people uh, and doing research and things like that so I saw that kind of positive the benefits of you know prioritizing yourself in the field as well as your family and then of course how maybe academic medicine or that career path may play into it so that was my earliest influence Um, and then as I was going through school you know I really liked the sciences women's health um, and so that led me to medical school and then during medical school I actually really loved all of the the fields of medicine I was like oh I could do this I could do this but when I rotated into OBGYN I was like okay this is this is it Um, I liked it as just a general practice Um, but I I 
I knew that I would probably subspecialize, um, but all the subspecialties looked really great. So I was like, okay, let me just do this residency then. And so during residency is when I got introduced to urogynecology, which is what I eventually ended up doing. Um, and that has to do with women that have pelvic floor disorders. So I don't know if you're familiar, if your listeners are familiar, but you know, pelvic floor disorders include things like um, prolapse of the vagina and uterus leakage of urine and stool, things that people really don't want to talk about, but are very common to happen after a person gives birth, whether it's vaginal or cesarean. And so much of the population has this disorder and they really don't want to talk about it, but there are things that we can do to help with that. So I just, I just thought it was a great fit for me. I loved helping these people, improving their quality of life. Right. Thank you so much for that description and, and uh, introduction. And I, I just wanted to go back a bit. Um, if you can, like, say for college or high school students, um, say what OBGYN stands for. Oh, yes. Sorry. Obstetrics and gynecology. Gotcha. Yes. Um, and and so I, I, I always like kind of dissecting stories and kind of going back and, and stuff. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, your experiences going to Meharry Medical School um, versus and then switching and going to um, residency in Arizona. And I wanted to, you to if, if it was um, if you could compare and contrast, like going to somewhere like Meharry um, having that education and going somewhere else that was like outside the HBCU um, realm and spectrum. Yes, that's a great question. So most of my my life growing up, I was pretty much the only person of color in my class, uh, in my extracurricular activities. And so in going to Meharry, it was the first time where I was surrounded by people that looked like me. And it wasn't just, you know, black people. We actually had a pretty diverse class. But I think everybody benefited from that. You know, if you identified as black, it was cool to see people with talent that you're surrounded by and could be inspired by. If you were, you know, white, Asian, or, you know, not black, it was actually probably also a cool opportunity to befriend people who are successful but don't look like you that are different from your family and friends at home um, and just learning from them. So I think everybody had a good experience. Um, and so in moving on and, and doing my training, you know, going back to predominantly white, um, it is it is different. So you go back to being, you know, the only one or one of the few. Um, and But I think that, you know, having done my schooling at Meharry, you just, it emphasizes the importance of community and creating that wherever you go and sustaining that. And so that's been very important for, for me wherever I go. Um, and it also contributes to success. Yeah. And I, I think for that, you for that, that um, this discussion too, because, you know, I always compare like when I went to um, medical school, it was a predominantly white institution. There was like at least one of five, one or uh, maybe five, six um, black students. Um, I remember my first year of medical school, um, or going into my second year, one um, was no longer enrolled in medical school, and so the numbers went down and less, and then, you know, you originally graduate, and you're seeing, like, a handful of people of color, or let's say blacks were, um, in, in my instance, that were going to medical school and, and, and succeeding, and, like, we, we got together, and it was great, but then it was, like, outside their realm, the spectrum was just, like, almost feels like you had to be a little um, 
not to say performative, but you had a um, code switch a lot and like mm-hmm. really think about how you're interacting with somebody, how you're interacting with patients, how you're actually interacting with physicians and staff, um, and the small mm-hmm. things that you're trying to do to, I guess, stop or like fight against some sort of possible or maybe probable implicit bias that um, people have. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I could share a story, it was interesting when I was a medical student. Yes. And um, I was going into a room, um, you know, I had those, that short little white coat, you know, little cute white coats that you get you when you're a professional mm-hmm. student. And, uh, yes. and I, I went into a room to check a patient. And the first thing they said was like, um, they basically, they thought I was like environmental staff. And I was like, no, I'm the you know medical student that's on the rotation, so I'm here to, to uh, talk to you. And so um, I always find it now, or even back then, that the importance of seeing more people of of color within this the realm of medicine or whatever professional field people are at. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, we can go down the road of of, of all that and the importance of it. Um, but for me, it's more of just like I think I I would love it where. We, there's not assumptions that people of color who enter the hospital are just environmental staff or hospital employees, but could be anything or anywhere within the institution. Right. Um, and I, I do think that it is important because it does play a role in how we perceive, or not we, but how people are perceived in the hospital and what assumptions people may still have just because a person is, you know, melanated. So. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to kind of bring up and see like your experiences with that, versus in uh, and and have that discussion with you. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I mean, I've I've experienced that as well uh, through all my stages, even currently. Um, you know, even if I'm wearing a long white coat, I've had people kind of double double take and oh, you're you're the doctor, or and in addition to you know maybe biases people come in with because of the way that you look as far as your you know your race also age is something ageism is a is a real thing um sexism all those isms and so one of the things that i strive for you were talking about code switching yes it is kind of to be mindful of you know yes you want to bring your authentic self but you also know as a society, there are still a lot of stereotypes that people bring into the workplace that unfortunately, if they act upon those, it can negatively affect you. And so I try to be my authentic self, but I also am aware that you know some things I just have to you know, dial back on because it will not be well received. You right, know, yeah, yeah. It, in healthcare at this time. And, it, yeah, and it's just, it's um, very like, interesting i guess from my perspective still going through the training and um you know see where i eventually end up um and and trying to find a way to fit this into how do we you know approach this in the in a in a way that allows for a more fruitful discussion and not division or diversion amongst mm-hmm. um like those the health professionals um so i wanted to use the time to transition and talk about um your um Waiting to go into academic medicine, and I also wanted to talk a bit about um, working at, at a place like Mayo, um, like a very world-renowned institution, um, and, and and wanted to get your your see if you had any okay going to academic medicine uh, that route, and then also mm-hmm. 
advice that you would have for, let's say, uh, medical students or college students or anybody coming in thinking about doing uh, working academics, um, things that you wish you knew when you were going through the process? Okay. So how I got into academic medicine? Well, you know, as you know, in our training, a lot of it, many of the training institutions are at academic institutions, and so that is what we are exposed to early. Um, and, you know, what I enjoy the most about being in academia is, you know, the, the, the research and the teaching kind of advancing my field. You know, for instance, for my field, one of the things that I'm looking into is how I can make the surgeries that we do last longer because, unfortunately, when we correct prolapse, it comes it comes back at a pretty unacceptably high rate. Um, and, and so I'm trying to look into what we can do to improve that. So I really like that about academia. Um, you have a little bit more time for that. You have, you know, more opportunities for research than if you were potentially in private practice. Although in private practice you can do that, it just might be a little bit harder. But uh, my tips would be as you're going through the training, you know, really embrace it, you know, for many of the programs, you have to do some type of research. You have to do some type of teaching or be involved in mentorship. So definitely embrace the process, learn from it, and then at the end you can decide, is this the best fit for me? Would I rather go into private practice or do I want to stay in, in academia or do a hybrid or something else? Um, and I would say at the end of the day, don't feel pigeonholed into a title or whatever really listen to what your calling is what you're passionate about and go with that and it will make it work so if you're not really in, interested in academia you know don't do it because it's better to be happy and successful than miserable and you know have a title right yeah and trying to and then mm -hmm. um your other uh-huh go ahead oh don't, go ahead i'll finish i'll ask you afterwards and and then i was going to answer your second one about uh, my experience at mayo is that the the question oh um yeah, like tips, uh, yeah, your experience at Mayo, or I guess it, it's, I, I, I asked that question because it seems like Mayo, a world-renowned institution, and then I guess for me, or and I, I guess I'm going to just generalize it, like the, the imposter syndrome of going to a place like that or working in a place like that, especially coming from mm -hmm. being a person of color, and um, it is, again, this is nothing against institutions and stuff, but it just seems like the outside, it seems like it's an imposter syndrome. Like, there's no way they would ever look at me or stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. And but you've been very successful um, there as a as a uh, academic and, and teacher and educator. And I just wanted to, yeah, get your your thoughts about um, um, how or to decrease the imposter syndrome. I guess would be the way I want to I want to go with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and making this thing like there are there are possibilities for sure for people to um, achieve where they put their mind to. Yeah, um, I, I would say definitely everybody experiences imposter syndrome. Uh, no matter how successful you are, what stage you are, there will be times where you'll be like, you know, am I the best fit for this, or can I really do this? Uh, or just kind of discredit what you've done in the past. And I was like, oh, you know, how did I how did I come here? But I think, you know, going back and looking at this is what I have accomplished and taking pride in that, that, that helps because if you really look at it, the fact that you went through all this schooling, all this training, delayed gratification, 
and are where you are now, I mean, that's in itself impressive. So you definitely have the perseverance and the skills to be here. So, you know, just continue to do what you're doing. So um, how I address that is, yep, to go back and look at where I've come and where I am now. And then as far as this position, um, you know, I think what was really reassuring is that they wanted me here. Um, I interviewed at some places where that were also academic, considered academically rigorous, but I just didn't get the same feeling like, oh yeah, you have a great CV, but there just wasn't really chemistry, if you will. Um, and so when I interviewed for this position, I just felt like I was they really wanted me here. They wanted my skills. They thought I would add um, to what they're building. My colleagues seem great, and I can say they are actually great now working with them for over a year. And so it just seemed like a good fit. But even despite that support, you're still going to have challenges no matter where you go. But it is important to go to go where you're wanted because when you face those challenges, those will be the people to support you. Um, so I think that's very important, especially as a minoritized person, to make sure that you are go where, you go where you want it and you have a good support system. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. And, it, and I going through it now. I mean, I'm doing the fellows. I'm doing at this time of recording. I'm still going to fellowship. One day I'll be done with fellowships and, yeah. and all the training. Um, but I guess in a way, yes, you will. <laughs> one day, and I and I, I I'm not saying it's it's bad or anything. Um, so because uh-huh. um, so uh, for those who I don't know maybe following my journey, I'm not sure. Neuropathology is a two year fellowship, and forensics is a one year fellowship. So it's like a mini residency slash post residency type thing, um, and you do this after residency. Uh, after you finish a pathology APCP or AP or whatever you decide to do, if you decide to do pathology, um, for that little aside, um, yeah, no, I'm just saying like with 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 academics or with just wherever you go, um, and I guess I, I want to go like kind of gear this towards like medical students or maybe residents who are in the process of applying for fellowship, regardless of what field they are. Um, when you are going through and from what I've heard and what I'm understanding is like if, you, you, if academics is for you and you're very passionate about like doing with teaching and the service and the research um, and you want a place that does that it definitely is important to find a place that um, reverberates with you um, at, a, at a level that just like you know what I feel comfortable coming here I feel like they would support what my needs are um, and especially from what I heard like going through the the first year attending hump or maybe several years of being a first time attending and like trying to like mm-hmm. understand the system trying to understand how to be an attending and then also like you know making your way through and, and finding um, your 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 way and stuff like that and so I, I always oh, really enjoy having the discussions of like you know what's the next step what's what should we always look for in terms of just like you know academics and that and then but but also look towards um, people of color who are listening to this and I you know medicine but whatever professional field or field that you're you know you're going into I, I always say like there's always that extra for me, I feel like that layer where it's just like, okay, like, you know, you have the qualifications, though. Um, you have the qualifications, and hopefully it's not, um, you know, you don't feel like that adds to the imposter syndrome of wherever you're going and, and where you're applying um, and where you eventually end up is, like, what I wanted to say, basically. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you had any, any anything else added to that or... Um, that you want to add? To yeah, that. I think you summed. I think no, I think you summed okay. it up.
perfectly. Um, yes, the first year uh, as an attending, it is challenging. Mm -hmm. You are, you know, trying to decide how you want to do things. You've maybe learned how to do things various ways. Like yeah. for me, I'm a surgeon, so I have all these different techniques. So what do I like the most of what do I want to use and mm -hmm. um, and then just learning a new hospital system and mm -hmm. uh, there's just a lot of a lot of uh, factors but um, but definitely it does get better after training yeah. and it's it's definitely worth it but yes okay. um, so I would also take this time um, because I, I love that I have a non pathologist on here um, I have a surgeon on here who can basically <laughs> educate me about more about you know your field and your specialty um and i know you started a bit about it um before and i i wouldn't know mm -hmm. if you could if you talk more about um i guess this, these are things that unfortunately um i guess it's not discussed until patients come to you and then you have the open frank discussion um is it do you feel like it's a societal thing that people just don't want to talk about that that aspect even though it sounds like it's something that's could be common or is yes, common? i sorry. think it's a yeah, I think it's societal and, you know, cultural, too. Um, there are some people that come in and said, you know, I didn't know that this was so common. And I just found out that my mom had this, but she was too embarrassed to talk to me about it. And and that's kind of that's kind of sad that if you're close with a family member, they feel like their condition is like makes them unworthy and undesirable and they don't want to share that. So um, I, I do think as a society, we should just make it known that yes, it is unfortunately about 20% of women over their lifetime will, women or people who have vaginas or uteruses will undergo a surgery for incontinence or prolapse. You know, that's quite a bit. Um, and so uh, definitely just making it people more aware of that these things can happen would be good. Um, the biggest risk factor is, like I said before, having, uh, being pregnant and having babies. Gotcha. And, are, and there, are there any other parts of um, the field that um, you can let us know that's been kind of growing and evolving, things that you just like, wow, I'm so loving that, I'm here to... To, to help out or see it and grow and evolve. Um, if I can give an example, like in pathology right now, where it's, I think it probably do out the fields as well too in, in different fields of medicine. Um, but if I could talk about neuropathology specifically at the time of the recording, there's you know a lot of things with our new Who book, which has a lot of molecular um, advances to it. And it seems like, and, it, and other parts of pathology as well too. And I just wanted to know if like there were any advances or things that is like blowing up the field and stuff that you wanted to make us aware of. Yeah, sure. So um, let me just give you a little bit of background. So I think I mentioned before that unfortunately the surgeries that we do to correct the prolapse, um, which typically involve using the patient's own tissue and absorbable suture, that's how we do the repair most of the time. Unfortunately, they come they, they have a high risk of coming back over the course of the person's lifetime. Um, and that could be for several reasons. It, it could be because their tissue is already damaged or uh, predisposed or has a predisposition to prolapse. And so we're using that. And so it kind of, in an essence, stretches, stretches out again. I, we don't know. And so one of the ways that we tried as a as a field to fix that is to use mesh and i don't know if you or your listeners have heard about some of the controversies with mesh for prolapse but essentially you know the the mesh that was used in the past was um 
translated from mesh used for hernia surgeries and it wasn't rigorously studied enough in the vagina and in the pelvis and unfortunately there were complications that were unacceptable and those products have been pulled from the market. There is still mesh that we use for pelvic floor disorders but it is, it is improved, but even still, it's a foreign material. And anytime you have a foreign material in the body, there is a risk of rejection in, in various forms. So one of the things that I'm excited about and that I am um, hoping to get a grant to, um, to further investigate is regenerative medicine. So using regenerative ma medicine, things like stem cells, exosomes, that can help hopefully um, make our surgical repairs using the patient's own tissue last longer. So perhaps recruiting better cells and, and tissue to regenerate and keep that repair lasting longer than their, you know, initial original tissue. So that, so that is something that it's still preclinical. We're still not able to, you know, do clinical trials yet, but hopefully yeah. um, in the future over the course of my career, that will be something that we can bring to the field. Yes. All right. All right. We'll see down the road. Ooh. See you up there. Yeah. <laughs> Getting them awards. <laughs> Getting them praises. And then are yeah. you in the team? Um, so, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I can't wait to see that. Um, so I wanted to take this time uh, to transition um, mm -hmm. about the diversity in general. And I, I wanted to kind of, um, I asked this question to yes, and I, I, I want to ask you too, it's about intersectionality and, and about being a person of color or uh, multiple identities and also being in medicine. Um, but for you, for example, how do you personally define your own blackness? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm black, uh, my dad is black, my mom's black. My mom is Afro-Cuban, so she was um, born in Cuba and migrated here when she was 17 with her, with her younger brother. But, uh, but I, I identify as, as, as black, African-American. Gotcha. And then in, in terms of your own personal view of how your blackness defines you. And so, for example, mm. I feel like, and I, I said this before to, um, uh, to other to other guests or people in, in, in person too, that when we say black African-American, or for example, that I feel like at times it's defined by it for us, like societally. Mm -hmm. And it's not, I'm not saying anybody's doing it on purpose. Like it just, in, in general, it just seems like, it's just like, okay, this is how we can, um, say it's black just by skin color you know that's it mm -hmm. um but at the same time i feel like it, there's so much heterogeneity in terms of being yeah. uh, a person of color being black um and i feel mm -hmm. like we all in a way define what our own blackness means to us and how it enhances us how it empowers us um how it views how it makes us view the world um, and that's why I asked, like, in terms of identifying or, like, your your own, like, personal definition of your own personal blackness, because I guess it's yeah. heterogeneous, um, and everybody has a different view of their own um, uh, way, and I just, I always love to ask that question and engage, because I feel like I, I yeah. kind of grow myself, and I always love to hear what people have to say about it. Yeah, yeah. I think my original answer was something that if somebody asked me on the street, kind of 
quick and easy, kind of a, like you said, kind of like a boxed in, kind of check the mark government form kind of thing. But I would say, yes, my, I agree. My, my blackness is unique. And so is everybody else's. Um, it's based off of my experiences where I've lived, my family, you know, culturally, um, you know, obviously I have locks. Um, and so I think if you see me, that kind of shows part of my blackness. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, you know, the way that I like to style myself, represent myself, um, the way that I speak, um, especially maybe outside of the work setting where you feel like you can be your 100% holistic, authentic self and not that you're not that at work, but again, kind of that little bit of code switching we were talking to. But, but yeah, it it is fun to see. It's fun to see people who maybe grew up in the North or South or West, um, and just the different nuances of blackness. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 uh, have loved it, you know, ever since I've loved the, to, to see that, to see it grow and, and, and evolve. Do you feel like for you, um, especially in medicine, um, and also the other intersectionality of um, being a black female in medicine, um, do you feel like there are times that it just empowers you to to do be more bolder? Or do you feel like at times you just kind of inhibit yourself just because you feel like you're, you have to cold switch in order to be more, be I want to see more accepted. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Or to cold switch. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I would say I'm, I'm trying to think back because I feel like I've been pretty close to my authentic self uh, in and outside of work for a while. And that has been very intentional. Um, but I would say, yes, probably early in my training where you just didn't know, you know, oh, I know I want to do fellowship. I don't want to rock the boat or I know I want this opportunity. I don't want the I don't want to rock the boat. But as I kind of moved on, it's like a lot of times it probably wouldn't have made a a big difference anyway. Um, And then also when you I feel like when you're kind of hiding uh, part of your authentic self, when you're having to change for other people you just don't feel great or you just it just it takes away from whatever you're trying to achieve and so I really do try to feel like I am being myself at all times and and hopefully my best self so that you know there's I feel like I haven't lost anything and wherever I go it was probably the best fit for me because hopefully I was you know, accepted or invited or, you know, whatever, because I, I brought my true self. And like I said, when I interviewed for my, for my current job, I had my locks on full display. Um, you know, I talk how I'm talking now. And so uh, it just felt really good when they were like, yeah, we, we want you. We want you for who you are, for yes. all that you have to bring. Yeah. Inclu- including your blackness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I think probably many of the people that are tuning in are are career-minded or in medicine or thinking about medicine. And I would say, you know, no matter what you do, we've talked a lot about authenticity and, and that's important. We've talked about going places where you're supported or creating that support for yourself because again, there will be challenging times. So it is important to be, to have a good foundation to to fall back on if you need it. Um, but I also want to take the time to to talk about and emphasize, you know, 
it is important to prioritize yourself and and that includes in in health and health in all the various forms because as you know medical school's hard um residency challenging if you do fellowship that's challenging uh being in a, an attending out in practice no matter if it's academic private is challenging um, and so I feel like a lot of people especially in medicine they said oh you know I I gave up my 20s or I gave up this time or I sacrifice all of this for medicine and I have you know now my personal health or you know I'm now suffering I'm now burned out and so I really want to emphasize that people like establish early on those good habits take care of yourself put yourself first obviously success is important and there will be times where you have to stay up a little bit later to, to study or whatever but I would just say make that a priority because you're in this for the long haul hopefully and this career is challenging and so you have to make sure that again you're number one and that you're healthy so that you can take care of yourself, you can take care of your loved ones, you can take care of your patients. So I just want to I just want to emphasize that because I, I do think that's very important. Yes, thank you for bringing this up in terms of, um, you know, I guess the general term of wellness, but also personally about about that. And for for those who are, let's say, in medical school right now, college or residency, um, dealing with multiple things. And, and I guess, um, I guess I wanted to um, say like I, I get it you know outside of residency or studying or anything like uh, life's in studying there's multiple things that people are dealing with that they may or may not discuss for sure and I and you know I hope that things are getting better on that aspect if um, this resonates with you but also taking care of yourself um, which it's, it's interesting if I can go back I and maybe maybe this is more of a things where it just felt like you just kind of give yourself some medicine and then um and you're like, oh, yeah, like, I'll get through it. Like, sure, no problem. And when, when I get to a certain point in life, I'll have more time. I'll have more time to do this. I'll have more time to do that. I'll have more time mm-hmm. um, today. And I, I, if I can share something with the audience, too. Um, yes, please. Yeah. I, 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 when I was a, um, when I was, you know, I didn't come out till med, like, mid med school. But before all of that, like when I was in undergraduate and when I was in, in, in like high school and college or undergrad, um, during my training process, basically from uh, from being in elementary school and onward, I mean, I, I thinking back a bit retrospectively, I knew when I was younger um, that I was, but I was such in denial, and I always said like, oh yeah, once I finish, like get into medical school, and then basically get into medical school, like maybe I'll do something, and then once I got into medical school, I was like, you know what, no, no, I'll put that, you know, I'll deal with that later because I needed to basically get into like residency do well and then i and i was like oh yeah when i'm attending maybe i'll have time because you know the, the i guess the myth is like oh the attendings always have time because they're not you know on the floors you don't see them and that's not that that's that's the myth unfortunately it's a myth um attendings are doing a lot more in the background but <laughs> that i see but i i agree i know i'm rum- i'm mumbling and going off the tangent but i i think if if, if that can help relate with people i i i was i was saying I'm going to go into medical school and I was just going to work, 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 and then maybe just deal with the whole coming out process some down, sometime down the road, you know. But then, then, then you're just like getting into the process, and when does that time come? You know, when do you say to yourself, mm-hmm. "I need time to do something for me" without feeling guilty or feeling like you're running away or like you're neglecting studies or you're neglecting 
being the best that you can be. And I feel like it's it's always I feel like it's it's a juggling act, especially if there's other stuff going on in the background that you're also um, maybe dealing with. Right, right. And it, if your goal too is you know if you don't do it for yourself, do it for others. As far as when you are your again, I keep saying authentic, but when you are your authentic self even if people don't necessarily identify with that they will be inspired by that and that is another way that you are touching people's lives without even doing you know direct medicine um and so when you really prioritize yourself i think i think everybody wins really you're happier you're more productive your your bosses your residency directors you know your patients they will benefit from that Yes. Yep. Um, I've been enjoying this episode so far. It's been great. <laughs> I feel like I've been talking so much, so I apologize to the audience. No, and I apologize no. to you too. But um, I did have two last questions um, I wanted to ask you before um, for the episode. So the first one is: um, I always ask for um, I always ask the pathology and laboratory medicine. Um, professionals who come on about diversifying in pathology. Mm-hmm. But um, for you, what do you think are ways we can diversify, I guess, in, in medicine um, in general? Let's say let's say OBGYN and then um, pelvic reconstruction. What are ways you think um, it could be diversified or how it could be diversified? Right. I think definitely early exposure is helpful. Um, so we talk about the pipeline a lot. I mean, I do think that it is important to have that early exposure for me, like I said, I had a very early positive exposure through my father, but not everybody has that. Um, and so I think, you know, definitely uh, social media, which is how I actually met you, is a really great way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried to get into it a little bit more, but uh, I think definitely, especially for younger populations, if they see a positive figure that's in an area of medicine that they didn't even think about, that's just one one exposure, going to schools, um, you know, career day kind of things, um, or if they come to your office as a patient and they have a good encounters. But I think definitely having that early on is helpful to kind of plant the seed. Um, and, and then as they're kind of moving up, or even if they're you know a college student or something like that, having them come with you doing volunteer work, um, getting them involved in your research, so doing that mentorship component, mm-hmm. and then definitely sponsorship when they're in the position. So, you know, connect connect them with other, you know, successful people, ha- help them get into that internship or, you know, have them be the uh, first author on the paper, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's just some of the ways that we can kind of help people get interested, especially in, in Eurogyne and OBGYN. And then the last question I have is how can people follow you on social media to see how your career progresses? So I am on Twitter and I'm also on um, Instagram. I will say I'm a little less active than I have been in the past, uh, mm-hmm. but that, those are the, the two main ways that I connect with people socially on the platforms. Oh, and then the, tw- the uh, Twitter um, would be uh, placed into the show notes for, the, for anybody who's interested in, in, in following um, her. Please follow her. She has amazing pictures. I love them. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> Like, oh my god well, so do you actually please <laughs> yes um yes did you have any final thoughts or questions that you um wanted to tell the audience before we head off 
Um, I think we really covered a lot today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to chat with you, and I love your podcast, and so I'm, I'm very happy to, to be here. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Now, I just wanted to have a little disclaimer, too, um, the fact that we know we're medical professionals and we're discussing it. If there's any... Um, medical questions that you have these provide close to your primary care provider and discuss it with them so that way they can um help guide you towards the professional you need to to see for your ailment so that's all i wanted to say with that thank you so much i appreciate it and i was glad that we had a discussion (laughs) yes thank you dr williams thank you okay hi again friends well this is it for today's episode Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to the Diversified Math Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope to see you soon.